Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see you. Thank you for being here to worship with us. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we are going to be in Psalm 24. Psalm 24. We're in the middle of our Summer in the Psalm series. And a few weeks ago, I mentioned Sarah uh, went through the 23rd Psalm. 23rd Psalm um, obviously is, is the most popular Psalm in all the Bible. It's arguably the most popular passage of Scripture in all of the Bible. Um, but I wanted to take some time last week and this week and look at the Psalms on each side of the 23rd Psalm, Psalms that are often uh, overlooked. And so last week we looked at the 22nd Psalm, and today we're going to look at Psalm 24. So you can, uh, you can begin to turn to Psalm 24. I love, you know, our drummer Joel is out today. And so uh, Jordan's like, no problem. I'll just drag the, dr- the drum over and play guitar and sing and do, and do the drum. It's like all, all in one. I joked in the first service that, you know, what we ought to do if Chandler's gone is also drag the keys over here and just let him try to do all of it, you know, one-man band. A lot of awesome. Um, grateful for our band. They're, they're obviously amazing and do a great job. And again, if you're, if you're just visiting with us, one of the things we're doing for the summer is uh, changing up our order of worship a little bit. And so we sang just a couple of songs up front. Um, and then we're going to get into God's Word. And then again, part of the idea behind Psalms, which Psalms is itself a worship book. It's essentially like an Old Testament hymn book. Many of these Psalms would have been sung. And so we are allowing God's Word then to prepare our hearts for even more worship. So at the end of the sermon, we're going we're gonna to have a, another worship set um, at the end. Some of you might be like, we only sang two songs? That's, that's why. There'll be, there'll be more later. All right, there'll be more later. Psalm 24, this psalm is broken down into three sort of sections, and so I'm just going to kind of walk through them section by section. Here's the way, it, the way it begins. It's a psalm of David, and he begins by saying, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The big idea of this first section is that everything ultimately belongs to God, all right? Everything belongs to God. It's all His, which means that we are not owners, that we are stewards, okay? This has a lot of implications for a lot of things in our life, but specifically, um, and probably uh, the one we most often think of, is that it obviously has implications for our money, our possessions, our finances, our wealth, um, all, of, all of those things, okay? That we don't see ourselves as owners of anything, but we see ourselves of, as stewards of everything. So I'm going to take a little bit, and I'm going to talk about money, possessions, wealth, finances. Everyone's like, oh, I knew it, you know? Come to church, preacher's going to talk about giving more money. We're going to take a special offering. I'm just kidding. We're not taking a special offering today. Um, you know, I'm not, me and Austin aren't getting raises. We don't, we're not getting private jets, none of that, all right? Don't worry. Relax, relax. The reality is that Jesus talked about money, possessions, wealth, finances, um, at least about a third of his teaching. Some would say more than that. Um, Jesus dealt with those, with those subjects. Um, and so we in the church need to have times and seasons where we also address those things. And the reason that's so important is because Jesus connected those things to your heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And so um, you cannot divorce your money, your possessions, your wealth from the overall discipleship and, and spiritual life. And sadly, I know, again, some of you rightly so get kind of that nervous anxiety when a preacher, pastor, ministry leader starts talking about money because, you know, 
the church has kind of found itself in one of two camps. Uh, what happens is you get the group that always talks about money. Seems like all they ever want to talk about is, is money, and you'll have pastors, preachers that'll say stuff like, if you just sow a financial seed into this ministry or this church or this thing, then God will, God will bless you, and um, God will bless you tenfold, and it's like this promise that if you give, then you're going to see a return on your investment, and, and you know, you're going to, whatever, you're going to see it returned to you in some way. Um, you've also seen when I was growing up, there was a lot of tele-evangelists, right? These guys on TV that would um, ask for money all the time. You know, the ones I'm talking about, like they all, they were dressed in really nice, fancy clothes and they had all the bling and like the jewelry. Their wives had really big hair, you know, and they would say, just send us your money. And, um, and a lot of people got, got ripped off and a lot of people got taken advantage of um, by, by people that were essentially enriching themselves with the promise of God's blessing if you, if you do that, okay? And so, because of that, that's kind of one lane. Because of that, some churches kind of swung hard the other way, and that is to never really talk about it. Never really talk about money, possessions, finances, wealth. That's yours, that's your own, that's a private thing, that's none of our business, that's, that's for you to do with you, you know. And, and so, as a result, the church then just kind of shied away from talking about money, and uh, again, it just was, it never, it never really came up at all. And to be honest with you, um, that was kind of where I was for, for many years. I would say for the first seven, eight years of our church, I was very reluctant to ever preach and teach about, about money because the last thing I wanted was for anyone to think that I was one of those guys, one of those kind of weird, crazy pastors just asking for money all the time. And so as a result, I just never wanted to really talk about it. And what we noticed was that we had some consultants that came in um, to do some work and just help us just figure some things out. We grew really fast, had a lot of growing pains. We were trying to get our feet underneath us, see where the blind spots and the holes were. And, and one of the things they noticed was that for a church our size at the time, they were like, you have a, a very small percentage of your people that are giving, like um, your, your budget for a church your size is, is way behind. Um, and so... One of the things that that consultant said that was very convicting for me and stuck with me was he says, at the end of the day, if you have a giving problem in your church, what you really have is a discipleship problem. You really have a discipleship problem. Because again, Jesus connected your money to your heart. And uh, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And so it's important that we, that we talk about these things. And just to be full transparency, I looked this week at our own giving and kind of where we're at as a church. A couple things, first of all, we are doing fine. We, have, we, are, we are actually ahead of budget. We've always made, we've never had a year in our church's life where we've not made budget. So God has been unbelievably good and gracious to us and he's always met our needs and, and we've never been in some sort of big financial bind as a church. So again, relax, deep breath. We're not asking you to pull out your, your wallets and we're not passing the buckets this morning. We're not taking a special offering, none of that. That being said, um, we did notice that about 25%, only about 25% of people that are regular members and attenders give regularly and consistently, and only about 35% have given anything over about the last year, okay? So that's pretty low. Um, and, and so again, I don't say that because we need your money. We need more money. Here's what I think about though. I think about, man, if we were to bump that percentage up to even 50, 60%, man, think about all of the stuff we could do, right? 
Think about all the needs that could be met, the churches that could get planted, the missionaries that could get sent, the ministries that could get funded, um, some of our building needs here. I mean, there's, there's no limit to the stuff we could do, even if we could kind of bump that up just a little bit. And so I wanted to talk just for a little bit about about giving. And again, uh, the first big idea is, again, that we are, we are not owners, that we go through life and we as God's people, we don't see ourselves as owners of anything, but we are stewards of everything. And again, I've preached on this before, but if you see yourself as a steward, that changes your generosity, doesn't it? If it's not mine to begin with and I see a need that I can meet, it's far easier for me to bless and to help meet that need because after all, this is what God has given me and it's my joy then to bless someone else. Okay? If I see myself as an owner, then it's mine. I'm entitled to it. You don't deserve it. It's, it's mine. Back off, right? And so we want to see ourselves as stewards rather than owners. The second big idea is this. We don't give in order to be blessed. We give because we already are blessed, right? That's very different. You'll never hear me, get a, you'll never hear me say, if you just sow your financial seed to the vista, God will financially bless you immensely. No, that's, I'm not making that promise. I don't know whether God will or not, right? That's the reality. I have no idea. But we don't give so that we can, you know, be financially blessed. That's the wrong motivation. We give because God has already been unbelievably good to us. God has already blessed us. Ephesians says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the, in the heavenly realm. We have been blessed with Jesus who has done more for us than we could ever say thank you for, right? Right? And so we respond to what God has already done with our generosity. It's not, I'm going to give so that God will give me a bunch. No, it's, I'm going to give because it's the least I can do because of how good and how faithful God has already been to me, right? Those are two big principles. Let me, let me mention this because every time I talk about giving, the subject of tithing always comes up. Like some of you grew up in more of a traditional church. You heard tithing, I'm supposed to give my 10%. Anybody ever heard that? 10%, right? It's in the Bible. Uh, kind of, it is. Uh, in the Old Testament, tithing was a law that was given that the people were to give 10% um, to, back to the temple, to, to the Lord, okay? But here's what I'm going I'm to say. Some of, some of you that are real traditional, you're, you might disagree with me, and that's okay. Uh, if you have an angry email to send, send it to Austin. That's fine. He loves those. Um, <laughs> but here's, here's what I firmly believe. Um, I believe that we, New Testament church, we are no longer under the law of the Old Testament, okay? So, some of you are like, I like this guy. He just told me I don't have to tithe, right? You're like, yes, okay? Uh, That's true, but stay with me because in a little while you might not like me, I don't know. But tithing is this Old Testament principle, but here's the thing. Most people that preach and teach tithing 10%, it's in the Bible, they don't actually follow tithing the way it was done in the Bible. Because in the Bible, they gave 10%, first of all, off of their gross, not the net, but the gross income. Um, Secondly, when you add up all of the uh, temple taxes and and, and then taxes for certain festivals, holidays, priestly tax, seven-year tax, there's all these others that kind of went along with the tithe. And so when you do the math, um, essentially every single person was required, the law, to actually give what was closer to like 20%. All of a sudden we're like, ooh, I don't like tithing anymore, right? It was actually closer to 20% to 20% what they actually gave. In addition, I've always found it really funny that preachers will say, we are no longer under the law. Praise God. Thanks be to God, we're no longer under the law. I can eat bacon. I can have a ham sandwich, right? Pork chops, yummy. Like we talk about not being under the law, and then you're like, well, what about, what about tithing? Oh, yeah, we're, we're still under that one. Like we are. So we're, we're not under the law, but we're still under that law? Like that doesn't make sense to me, okay? In addition, Paul writes a lot of letters to the New Testament church. 
The New Testament church are all of these, uh, these churches that are getting started full of new believers. Now, if, if Paul, who gives a lot of instruction to these churches on how to be the church, if tithing, the whole 10% was, was supposed to be really important to the church, you would think that Paul at some point would, would mention tithing, that he would bring it up, that he would tell them, you need to be given your 10%. Paul never does that in any, of the, in any of his letters. He doesn't write about tithing. He never mentions the word tithe. That is an Old Testament law. And thanks be to God, we are not under the law. We're not under any of the law. Okay, Jesus came and Jesus fulfilled the law. He completed the law. Now, so all of that is, that, that's kind of that's one side of it. Then let, me, then let me say this. Also, Psalm 24.1 declares that everything belongs to God anyway. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills is what scripture, like he, he is fully self-sufficient whether you give a dime or not, okay? Now, here's the big question, right? If all of it belongs to God's and he doesn't need your money, and if we are no longer under the law, then why should we give money to the church at all? Why do we, why do we need to give? If God already owns it all, doesn't need our money, and we're not under the law, then why give? Why give? Studies show that across the board, not just, not just our church, but really across the board to Christian churches and organizations that giving is down. Um, in large part, younger people aren't giving for a couple reasons. Now, some of it is the church has not done or, or, or certain ministry organizations have not been transparent and accountable with money. And so there's a lot of distrust. A lot of younger people, they just, they just have some trust issues, rightly so, a lot of it, rightly so. Um, so there's some reluctance to give. Um, and then the other big factor the study revealed was that they, they don't understand why. The church doesn't talk enough about why you should give to the church. And so let me just, for a second, talk about why. While the New Testament doesn't mention tithing a 10%, it does talk about giving to the church. And when the New Testament talks about giving, there are some reasons why we need to be generous and why we need to give, okay? Um, I'll mention a few. First of all, it reminds us of Psalm 24, verse 1. It reminds us that ultimately everything belongs to God. When I can give some of what um, uh, the world says is my most prized and valuable treasure, then it reminds me that at the end of the day, this isn't, this isn't mine anyway. It's not mine to hold on tightly to. It belongs to him, and that's a way to show that ultimately this belongs to God, okay? Uh, another reason is that it prevents money from becoming your master. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, a man cannot serve two masters. You will either love one and hate the other, or you'll despise the one and love the other. But he tied it to money when he said, man cannot serve both God and money. Jesus knew, God knew that there is a propensity in us to chase the dollar. There is something in us that says, I need more of that. I want more of that. And to sort of gear our lives around chasing, chasing money. And so in order to prevent money from becoming this thing that sort of dangles in front of us our whole lives and that we chase after, giving, giving is a big part of that. It helps it prevent money from becoming our master. A third reason is that it's an act of obedience. And again, while the, while the New Testament doesn't say tithing 10%, it does talk about giving to the church. It talks about giving regularly, over and over. Paul talks about it in Corinthians. A number of his letters, he's going to mention generosity and giving to the church, giving to the building the kingdom, to the work that God is doing, to mission, okay? So there is a, an encouragement in the New Testament that God's people that have been saved should then respond with generosity and give. And so it is an act 
of obedience. It's an act of obedience. Another reason is because it, at the end of the day, it, it blesses others and it builds the kingdom. It, it gets our eyes off of us and onto the work and the mission of God and what God is doing. When you give to the church, people get pointed to Jesus, the gospel goes forward, disciples get made, churches get planted, missionaries get sent. When, you, when God's people give to the church, his kingdom gets built in ways that if you just give to other places. Now listen, I'm not against giving. There's a lot of really worthwhile um, uh, organizations in our community that we as a church actually give to as well. I know families that give certain amounts to help meet felt needs through other organizations. That's great, that's a great thing to do. But when you give to the church specifically, it goes along with that, again, the gospel. Um, The gospel and, and, and people get pointed to Jesus. Disciples get made, churches get planted missionaries get sent. So here's what the New Testament does say about our giving, okay? The New Testament mentions three things when it comes to our giving. Number one is it it mentions that our giving should be uh, regular or consistent, okay? It should be regular or consistent. Whatever that means for you, maybe that's weekly, maybe that's bi-weekly, maybe that's monthly, bi-monthly, quarterly, whatever whatever consistent and regular means or looks like, it just basically is this idea that there should be a habit and a pattern of generosity. This is why God actually gave the people in the Old Testament the the, the tithe. Listen, and for the record, tithing's not wrong. If you you give 10%, like, great, that's a a great thing to do. That's a great place to start. Maybe you're like, I don't even know where to start when it comes to giving. Listen, tithing is a great principle. It's a great principle. A lot of people still use use tithing just as a, a basis. I would say this, if you don't give anything, start somewhere. Maybe, maybe you're, you're, you never have given anything and you're like, I don't feel like we can do 10%. Okay, start with 1%. Start with 2%. Start, start somewhere, right? Start somewhere. And so um, our giving should be regular and it should be consistent. A regular, consistent pattern of giving. The second thing the New Testament talks about is that it should be proportionately sacrificial. Proportionately. That means this. That means not everybody's going to give the same thing. It's not a, it's not a, like a flat tax, right? It's not like a, you know, everybody, everybody, and, and no matter your, your, your uh, socioeconomic status or whatever across the board is going to be equal, that there's a proportionate when it comes to giving, which means the, the family, the person making, you know, six figures and on up, they're probably going to give more or should give more than maybe the single parent that's just kind of scraping to get by and doing the best they can, Right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to look different for different people. There's not some set amount. It's going to be proportionate and sacrificial. Um, I know for me, for it to be consistent and regular and then proportionate, we, my fam, what we do is we have to build it into our budget, right? You got to build it into your budget. I don't know about you, but if, I, if it's not in my budget, I tend to forget about it, right? I tend to just not do it. And so the idea um, we encourage, build it, in, build it into your budget. Build generosity into, into your budget. And then the final thing that the New Testament talks about when it comes to giving, and this one's often, the, this is a biggie. The New Testament says that our giving should be cheerful or joyful. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver, right? In other words, if you are giving, um, but you're doing so reluctantly, you don't really want to, you just feel like you have to. If giving for you is some sort of, again, begrudging submission to a rule, then God would say, just keep it, just keep it, right? 
that, that God wants us to give and be joyful and be cheerful. God wants us to give in such a way where we're like, you know what, I can't wait to see what God does with that. I can't wait to see the, the ministry that takes place um, with, with this. It is my joy to bless. It is my joy to give. And so that's a big, a big thing the New Testament teaches is joyfulness, cheerfulness in, in our giving. That's what the New Testament says about giving, okay? It doesn't mention better give your 10%. Again, great principle, great principle. But it says that our giving should be consistent, proportionate, and cheerful. So that's what I would encourage you to do. All right, I've spent way too much time on two verses. So let's move on, all right? Verse three, here's the second section of Psalm 24. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So this section is really about approaching God in worship and being found acceptable to God, okay? And specifically, the psalmist says, he who has clean hands, which is our actions, our works, how we live our life, the things that we do, okay? Clean hands, outward actions, things that we do. And pure hearts. So pure hearts is then your motives. It's like it brings in the emotion, the feeling, the motives behind what we do. So either one by themselves is not enough, right? It's not enough just to do some really good things on the outside. God is concerned with the heart. And so your motive, your desire behind this, that's, that's part of the equation. God takes that into the equation. At the same time, it's not just enough to have good motives, right? Well, I, I wanted to do this. I, have a, I would love to do that. I have a good intention to do something. No, we have to actually follow through and actually do that thing. And so being acceptable to God, who can stand in his presence, being acceptable to God, it means both of those things, clean hands and a pure heart. Now, let me just say this so I can, everybody can relax for a second, but here's the, here's the thing. I think I speak for everybody, but if, if we need clean hands, right actions all the time, and pure hearts, right motives all the time, in order to be acceptable to God, then we are all in a lot of trouble, aren't we? Right? I know I am. I know I am. Full confession time as your pastor, I don't always have clean hands and a pure heart. And I don't think you do either, right? I know that because the Bible actually tells us that we don't. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that all we like sheep have gone astray and turned to our own way. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. And so if we need clean hands and pure hearts, in order to be acceptable to God, then yeah, we're, we're all in a lot of trouble. And here's the good news. God knew that. God knows that. God sees that. That is why God sent Jesus, right? God sends his son. Jesus lives the perfect, sinless, clean hands, pure heart life that you and I cannot live. Jesus then goes to a cross where he gives up his life on that cross in our place for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. I think we have it, throw it up here. Here's what it says. For our sake, he, that is God, 
made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who was sinless, became sin for us. Jesus took on himself all of our unclean hands and impure hearts. Jesus took that on. Jesus goes to a cross and he dies on the cross and he takes our sin and then look what happens. Where does our righteousness come from? It says, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the same thing it says in in Psalm 24. Back to Psalm 24, verse five. He will receive a blessing from the Lord, but notice where righteousness comes from and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So that means that our righteousness, our clean hands and pure heart, it it doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from us. Listen, you can try your best to be as good and holy and pious as you want all through life, and you are still going to fall woefully short of clean hands and pure heart. You just are. And so some people, this is where people get religion and Christianity mixed up, because religion says that I need to do all of these things, I need to try to have clean hands, pure heart, I need to be holy, as holy as I can be, so that God will find me acceptable. Christianity says you can't, you can't be holy apart from Christ. None of us can be holy apart from Christ. So we don't clean ourselves up, try to work on our junk and clean ourselves up so that we can come to God. No, we come to Christ. We come to Christ as we are, and we let Christ do his work in our lives that cleans us up. That's very different, right? I love what Charles Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, holiness is not the way to Christ but Christ is the way to holiness. Holiness is not the way to Christ. Again, you can't be good enough. That's really the basis of the gospel. The gospel starts with you and I recognizing that we are unclean and we are impure and we cannot fix ourselves and that's why we need a savior. That's why we need Jesus. And so I come to Jesus with all my faults, all my failures, all my sin, and I lay him at his feet and I trust in his finished work at the cross for me and then I get his righteousness. Only then am I acceptable to God. You want clean hands and a pure heart? You're never going to find it apart from Christ. Never going to find it apart from Christ. The last section of this psalm, beginning in verse 7, this psalm, again, is called a psalm of preparation. And so most scholars believe that this psalm was written by David when the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, which was, by the way, the... um, it was the literal like manifestation of the presence of God, okay? In, in, in that day and time, it was the spirit of God dwelt, the, the Ark of the Covenant. And so this psalm was written in preparation for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought into the city of Jerusalem. So as you read, we'll read this last section. It was a, a psalm of preparation and worship on a very solemn day where they were um, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into, into the city. Here's what it says. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and, be, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So they're singing this thing together as God's people as the ark, the God's presence, the king is being brought in to the doors and the gates, right? And I always find this interesting. Um, I've said it before, but I believe the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. 
It's foreshadowing and pointing to Jesus. And I always found it interesting that this, this is God's people, the nation of Israel, the Israelite people in the Old Testament. They are singing this in Jerusalem, waiting for the ark, waiting for the king. And then many generations later, this is the very same place where Jesus himself would walk the streets. The very same place where Jesus would ride his donkey into town, where people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. The very same place where Jesus would carry his cross through the streets, outside the gates, and the very same place where Jesus would ultimately give up his life on a cross. It's a psalm of preparation saying, get ready, the king is coming, and then unbeknownst to them, generations later, the king steps on the scene in this exact same place to accomplish the work that God had given him to do, to die for the sin of the whole world. As I think about this psalm being a psalm of preparation, essentially, it's a psalm for you and for me about how we should be living our lives. First of all, we should be living our lives as stewards, not owners. We should acknowledge and recognize that everything that I have is a gift from God. And I'm going to live my life in light of that fact. I'm going to live my life with open hands of generosity. Second thing, we live our lives in recognition of the fact that we can't be good enough. We can't save ourselves, fix ourselves, clean ourselves up enough. And so we must rely on the finished work of Christ and place our faith in Jesus. If we're ever going to have clean hands and a pure heart, it's only through Christ. And then finally, we live our lives in preparation for the King. We live our lives doing His work, building His kingdom, because guess what? He's coming back someday, right? We live our lives in light of the fact that one day Jesus will return. And maybe he calls us home before that, but he's going to call us home or he's going to come back. That's the way this whole thing ends, right? And so we live our lives in light of that truth. Let's pray together. Father, today we just stand before you as really grateful people for your goodness and your blessing in our life. Father, you have, um, you've blessed us with so much. You've given us everything that we need. You've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. And so our response, God, to your goodness is to, is to give. It's to, it's to be generous. We respond with generosity. We respond with worship. Not so that we will be blessed, but God, because we already are. And so today we just simply say thank you. We thank you for your provision. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his great sacrifice at the cross for us on our behalf. God, we trust in his finished work. And then, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live our lives building your kingdom and doing your work, that we would live our lives, Father, like you are indeed coming back because your word says that you are. So I pray that we would take these truths to heart, that we would remember this psalm and we would live our lives in light of those truths. And we pray this today in Jesus' name, amen.